ancient prophecies found in Scripture and fulfilled in Christ give us faith for today and hope for the future. Because with God, promises made are promises kept. Welcome to the season of Advent. So good to see you, so good to be with you, good to be with those who are watching online. Welcome to Victory Church as we continue this series, Promises Kept. And we're looking at the fact that the birth of Jesus was the result of promises that God made and God kept. Now, one of the passages that we see very often, that we hear very often with regard to the Christmas story is from Matthew chapter 2, in which we have the story of three wise men, three astrologers, and actually we don't know how many there were. We just know there were three different kinds of gifts, but traditionally three wise men who saw the star in the sky representing the birth of the Jewish king. And they traveled a long distance to go to give honor to this newborn king. And where do you expect foreigners to go to worship a Jewish king? You would expect them to go to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what they did. But when they got there, they told Herod what they had seen. And Herod was disturbed. He was very upset that there might be uh, another king who was aspiring to his throne. So he was very disturbed. And he called all the, the religious leaders together with a question. Where is this Messiah going to be born? And the, the religious leaders, the scholars, they knew the town where this Messiah would be born, and they told him it would be in Bethlehem. The wise men go to Bethlehem, and they find that the Messiah is indeed there. Not in Jerusalem, the center of power, but in the little town of Bethlehem. Now, how in the world did the religious scholars of Herod's day know that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem? They knew it because of the prophecy that God had given through the prophet Micah. And you see that in Matthew chapter 2. And it makes reference to Micah chapter 5, verse 2 where it says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's a little town in Lancaster County, isn't it? Uh, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So why would God have chosen Bethlehem. Why was the promise made that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? To help answer the question why Bethlehem and really to get into the significance because there is power, powerful significance in the choice of Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah, of Jesus. Let's bring it into our own current situation. What are the biggest problems America is facing today? Now, all you have to do is go to Pew Research or some other such research agency, and you can find out what is really weighing on Americans today. And the number one thing, guess what? It is the 
economy, correct? And people are concerned about things like inflation. That is seen as one of the greatest problems that we're facing. There's also a very big concern about the price, the cost of health care. So economy, that's, that's a big one. Another of the top six or so Big concerns, really big concerns of a majority of Americans is drug addictions. Uh, and probably some of us know people who are struggling with drug addiction. And that's a big concern, especially with fentanyl and, and, and people who have died over the recent years through drug addiction. Gun violence, that's not a surprise. That's a huge concern of the majority of Americans, violent crime. And, you know, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, it's probably good to hear that a majority of Americans believe that the decline of moral values is a big problem. So that, that is a huge, huge problem. Those are huge problems for us. And, and then the next question would be, what are the solutions? Where do we expect to find the solutions? Now, you're in church or you're watching a church ministry online, and of course, you know in this setting that the proper answer as to where to find the solutions is to say, Jesus, right? We all know that. But if you were to go to work tomorrow morning and you were to have a discussion about the big problems that the world is facing, you're just talking to your coworkers, or maybe you're having a conversation in a coffee shop and the people that you're talking to are not Christians and you're not thinking about God things because you're not in a church setting, it's probably likely that you'll start to think that the solution to these problems comes from places like Wall Street, New York City, you know, the centers of finance and power, or maybe Washington, D.C. If Washington, D.C. would just get their act together, then maybe we can find some solutions to these problems. Or maybe, maybe you would say, well, if Hollywood would clean up its act, you know, then maybe things would get a little bit better. Or, you know, if we're looking toward technology as a solution for a lot of the problems, we would say Silicon Valley, that's the answer. So a lot of times we would come up with the names of places, really, as the solutions for the big problems that we face. And, you know, I know we probably have a lot of complaints about each one of those, those places, but at the same time, we have a lot of hope. That's partly why we get disappointed in, in those centers of power, because we expect better. We, we expect more from them. We have a lot of hope. After all, those places are representative of some of the greatest achievements of humanity. And as proud Americans, we would probably say, you know, that these are some of the greatest achievements that have ever been accomplished by man throughout time. And so, you know, we take pride in these centers of power that, that are so connected to us and so connected to our lives in so many ways. We're proud of them. Well, Israel probably had the same kind of thinking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You know, if Jerusalem is, is strong and is a place where we can really count on the leaders and we can count on the things that God has put in place there, man, we're going to get out of our troubles. The thing is, you got to go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 1, and you'll find out that things are not so so good in Jerusalem at this point. Micah 5.1 says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, 
for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. See, Jerusalem was their hope, but they're now under siege. They are under military attack. And, you know, this might be current in Micah's time, or he might be prophetic. It might be speaking of a time to come very relatively shortly thereafter. But Jerusalem is in trouble. They are under siege. And, you know, in the beginning part of the book of Micah, the prophetic book of Micah in chapter 1, you know, God is speaking against the capital cities of the kingdoms, and I say that as a plural, intentionally, the kingdoms of the Jewish people because they're under, they're under judgment. And Israel had been divided into two kingdoms shortly after Solomon's reign. And you had the northern kingdom with their center of power in Samaria. And people were looking at Samaria. And then the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, with its center of power in Jerusalem. And people were looking for Jerusalem. And there were high expectations. Jerusalem was a source of pride for them. They had a great history behind them at this point. And not only did Jerusalem have a great history behind it, but it had actually been chosen by God as the place for the temple where God would be worshipped, where, where God said he would cause his name to dwell, this place where people from all over the world could, could pray toward Jerusalem and God would hear and answer their prayers. So they had a lot of expectations it was chosen by God as the center of political and military power and also of spiritual and religious power. But instead of the people of Jerusalem and the leadership that was gathered in Jerusalem being focused on the glory of God, they began to become focused on their own glory. We wouldn't do that, would we? No, that's a natural human inclination. So instead of being focused on the glory of God, the power of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, a huge issue for Micah, Jerusalem had by this time become the center for the abuse of power. The abuse of power. And if you read all of Micah, if you read the first four chapters, you'll see that the problem is is dire. The situation is, is catastrophic. The, the abuse, the injustice was horrific. And as a result, God allowed Jerusalem to go from this shining light on a hill, a place of glory, to becoming a place of shame. They, they faced the shame of being under siege, obviously. That was very much uh, the first part of that verse. Matthew 5 or Micah 5 1. But not only did they have the shame of being under siege, of being under attack by an enemy army, but it says that the king has been struck on the cheek with a rod. Now, this strike, when you strike somebody on the cheek, when you slap somebody, it's not for the purpose of harming them physically. There are better ways that a slap, even with a rod, there are better ways of inflicting harm than just striking on the cheek. What is the significance of striking on the cheek? The significance is it's a matter of shame. 
This is saying that the king, the, the king from this dynasty of David, chosen to rule in Jerusalem, is now being struck on the cheek. There's shame involved in this. And, you know, it, it's one thing, you know, especially those of us who are tough, macho guys, right? I mean, we, we, can, we can stand up to a fight, and we can fight with honor. And, you know, we can, can, you know, at least conceptualize that a little bit, that there, there's no dishonor in a fight. But then to be slapped on the face and to have shame coupled with our military struggles, it compounds the pain. It makes it all the more challenging. Let's, let's look at it this way. The Philadelphia Eagles lose to the 49ers. We didn't play the greatest game. We lost to a good team. It hurts, but there's not any real shame to that, right? But then the very next week, we didn't look so good in that game either. And we lost to a good team. But the team was the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, now that's painful. That's shame, right? Especially when you stood on this stage and you've bragged about the Philadelphia Eagles' victory over Dallas a few weeks ago. Oh, man, it hurts. Now, let me just say, I'm having a little fun with that. I don't take the, the football rivalry between Philadelphia and Dallas quite so seriously. I'm into it, but it's not that serious a deal. And it, for me, it's just a fun way of connecting with people in the greater Philadelphia area. So I'm having fun with it. And, you know, I'm not trivializing the spirituality or the seriousness of, uh, of preaching a sermon. I'm just using this to make a spiritual point, though. Shame hurts. Shame hurts. That's no wonder that scriptures are full of dealing with shame and the idea that God would take our shame from us. And what Jerusalem is experiencing now is, is shame. And, and part of the reason that shame can hurt so bad, it, 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 it could be so difficult to bear, is that shame hurts all the more when we have built ourselves up in pride. Isn't that true? Shame's not just a situation that somebody's just thrust on us and now we're ashamed. Now, shame hurts worse when we build ourselves up and then we're brought down. That feels terrible. And that's the problem that Jew Jerusalem faced at this time. The place of God's glory became the place of human glory. And the place of human glory became the place of human shame. Can we just acknowledge that a very quick path to shame is to take what God has given us for his glory and then use it for our own? Hmm. Take something that represents God's power. Take something that God entrusts to you to represent his love. Take something that God entrusts to you to represent his purposes for your life or for the church or for the world. And then you make it about yourself. Make it about your own power. Make it about your own glory, whether we're talking about your natural talents, your education, your success, and even your spiritual gifts. 
make it about ourselves, our spiritual pride, we're in for a fall. And folks, we've been talking about revival and new levels of revival, especially since the Asbury Revival of February and the things that we're seeing. One of the biggest problems with revival, one of the most tragic excesses and errors of revival is spiritual pride. Man, God does something good. God raised up Jerusalem. But when it became a source of pride, God let it fall into shame. And when we, if we want to be ready for a move of God, for God to entrust to us something great for his glory and for his honor, we can't turn it into something pridefully for our glory and for our honor. We want to keep the focus on God's glory. As we move closer to 2024, and I think it's going to be a year of increased revival power, let's make sure that we continue to walk humbly with our God. Amen? Amen. Focus on God's glory and not our own. So verse 1 of Micah chapter 5 depicts a, a shameful scenario for the Jewish people. But here's the great thing about this passage in Micah. And in fact, this is the third of a series of statements that Micah makes. And in each of these series of statements, there, there is the beginning of, of some kind of judgment. And it sounds harsh, you know, that, that, that marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So that's a statement of, of judgment. But after each of these three statements of judgment in this, this series of passages, there are promises. There are promises that far outweigh the judgment. Isn't that good news? That men, you know, things can be shameful, shames can be, things can be difficult, we can be broken down, we can be under siege. Anybody feel like they're under siege ever? God's promises are even greater than our problems. Wonderful promises. Verse 1 being verse 2, which we started out with. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Let me ask you this. When you were in high school, did you guys vote for the most likely to succeed? Were any of you that person the most likely to succeed? I wasn't either. How correct were your classmates in choosing the most likely to succeed? I don't know. I, 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 hopefully I didn't bring up any childhood trauma by <laughs> talking about this. But you know what God is centered on? God's not centered on the most likely to succeed. God is centered on the least likely to succeed. God is centered on the least likely. Bethlehem is the least among the clans. One of the translations, or a couple of different translations, said they're too little to be among the clans of Judah. They are so insignificant. And that points to a theme that surrounds the stories of the birth of Jesus. He's born not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem, a little teeny town of no real significance, not the place of power. It was, was it kings that attended to Jesus' birth? 
the wise men were not necessarily kings. They were astrologers, and they came about three years after. <laughs> there were no kings, but there were shepherds, the lowest of the, the vocations, the trades of the people of Israel. Shepherds, not kings. Mary, Mary in Luke chapter 1 in the, the Magnificat, you know, that song that she just burst forth with by the power of the Holy Spirit. She says, God has noticed what? My lowly estate, my humble estate. That God notices a lowly estate. God notices the Bethlehems and the shepherds and the small things, the, the humble maidservants. God notices those who are small. And Jesus even came as a helpless little baby lying in a stable in a manger. God takes notice. God chooses the least likely. And maybe God will choose us. Maybe God will choose you. Maybe we'll qualify for God to choose. You might have heard me say this before, but a few years ago, we had one of our members love him so dearly, but he was talking about our church being such a diverse church, very multi-ethnic. And he said, about me, if God can take somebody from Mississippi, like our pastor, Pastor Ed, he can use anybody, you know, and it's true. <laughs> if, if, if God can, can use me, he can use anybody. And I know, I know, I, I'm, I'm in, a, in a great position now, pastor of a great church, fairly rather large church, and you know, it, it, it looks good in so many ways, but folks, I'm, I'm a least likely and I hope that you are a least likely too, because God chooses the least likely kinds of things. The Apostle Paul says God loves to choose the, the weak to shame the strong. He loves to choose foolishness to shame the wise. God delights in doing that. He's looking for the opportunities, and Bethlehem presented that kind of opportunity. And so God chooses Bethlehem. Let's look again at what else God chooses here. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, reading it again. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, notice this part, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Bethlehem is significant, but folks, this is not about Bethlehem. This is not just about God chooses something tiny to do something big. This is not just that God chooses a little bitty David to fight a giant Goliath. This is not just that God likes to, to root for the underdog. This is, this is not about, this is about a particular one. This is about a ruler. This is about one whose roots are ancient. This is about one whose origins are from of old, of ancient time. This is somebody in particular that we're looking for. Who might that be? Know this. Looks can be deceptive. He's a little baby. He's coming as a baby. He's coming as a child born in Bethlehem, but he's not just any child. His origins are from of old. What the, might that be? Well, Micah knew The teachers of Scripture and 
Herod's time at Jesus' birth knew that Bethlehem represented King David. Why? Because King David was born there as well. And Jesus was a descendant of King David. All this points to David and God's promise to David. Remember, David was the least of his brothers, wasn't he? When the prophet Samuel was told, go to the house of Jesse, you're going to anoint one of his sons as the next king. Jesse brought out all of his sons to the big banquet in honor of this famous prophet who had come to do this great work of selecting the next king. And all these sons of Jesse passed by Samuel. And Samuel says, not a one. God says to Samuel, I haven't chosen them. I'm not looking on the outside. I'm looking at the heart. And at the end of going through all these brothers, these sons of Jesse, Samuel says, well, are these all the sons you have? Because God hasn't designated them. And Jesse said, well, there's one more. We didn't invite him. We left him out with the sheep. And it was David. And God said, this is the one. This is the one, this lowly David, who didn't count enough to show up or to be invited to the banquet, whose brothers and other stories looked down upon him and despise him. He is the one who became the king of Israel. He is the one who became the exemplary king of Israel. A shepherd like God is a shepherd. A, a man after God's own heart. A man who became the model against which every king who followed him was measured. David. The origins of the one who would be born in Bethlehem that Micah is prophesying. Points us back to David. And God, God is not just promising some general salvation here. The, the fact that, that this passage is bringing in David and pointing back to the kings, this ruler's roots in David is a result of God's personal promises. God made a personal promise. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that God made a promise to Abraham. And out of Abraham, because of that promise to Abraham, a personal, individualized promise, God raised up a great nation through whom the Messiah would come, through whom salvation of the world would come. Just to think that, that God made a, an individual promise, and we still are seeing that, that one promise to an individual, to a person, unfolding before our very eyes. And this is a reminder that God made such a personal, individual promise to David. He promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, that David would always have one of his descendants on the throne. Always. It would be a forever promise from God. Wow. I love that, that this, this story of, of the salvation of the world ties in so, so tightly with individual promises to, an, to a person, to a human being, to a, a, a living, breathing, walking human being, a person just like us. You know what that tells us about our God? He's a great God over all of history, but he makes personal promises. Maybe he's made some to you. and He's faithful to his promises. Promises made by God are 
promises kept. And, you know, this, this makes me hopeful that God's going to fulfill his promises to me as well. Yeah, he's concerned about the salvation of the whole world. But he's also the God who keeps his individual promises. And we see that as he honors the promises that he made to Abraham and to David. And as a result, we see the plan of salvation continuing. You know, Micah, he probably had a very limited view. He probably didn't fully understand what he was prophesying here. Because he's prophesying, he's prophesying out of a very real uh, political circumstance in which Jerusalem was going to be overwhelmed. And they're looking for a rescuer. He's probably think it's going to happen in the next 30 years or so. But Jesus, born in Bethlehem, wasn't going to arrive till about 700 years later. But God was true to his promise. I love that about God. <laughs> By the time Jesus came along, of course, the, the people of Israel understood that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But just like M Micah was probably looking at, man, this is going to be a, a salvation that is politically effective for Israel to keep them from being overwhelmed by Assyria and these foreign armies. Even though they were 700 years later thinking, well, this promise to Micah is still for today. They were looking for a political solution as well because they were at that point under Roman occupation. But God had bigger plans. This is not political. It was a small beginning. Bethlehem, a baby, but there were bigger plans. How does God fulfill his promise that one of David's descendants would always be on the throne? How does God fulfill the promises of a great ruler out of Bethlehem? By sending Jesus, who was a descendant of Abraham. That's why you have the genealogies in the Gospels. And a descendant of David. By having Jesus reign on an eternal throne, God is fulfilling this promise. And Jesus can do these things. He fulfills that promise because he's not just a descendant of Abraham and David. When I look at this statement that his origins are from of old, from ancient times, I think about what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. You know what he's claiming there? He's claiming origins in God. In fact, and this is one of the things for which they put Jesus to death, he is claiming to be God. He truly was born the king of angels. Come, let us adore him. He is born Christ the king. And the kingdom over which he would rule and reign was more than a political kingdom ruled from Jerusalem. Much more. And this is prophesied hundreds, and we could even say since this is still being fulfilled thousands of years in advance. Look at verse 3 of Micah chapter 5. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. 
Folks, when is that fulfilled? It's not fulfilled yet. We are seeing this prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ before our very eyes. See, the people of Israel, in their shame and in their distress, were looking for the day when once again the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel would be joined together representing that they were one people called by God for God's purposes in the earth. They were looking forward to that, but God had something even bigger than that in mind. God had something in mind that would include the brothers of Israel to come in. Jesus is said to be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, and we, are, we learn from our study of Abraham that we who are Gentiles are included as part of Israel through our faith in God in the same way that Abraham had faith in God. We're waiting for a whole lot of other brothers and sisters to be added to Israel for the fulfillment of this prophetic word. And Paul says one of the purposes of Jesus Christ is that the Jews and the Gentiles would be brought together as one new humanity. This is God's plan. This is why he raised up Abraham and David and Israel. And God's plan is to join us and continue to join us together. There's a great reunification taking place, and it's more than Israel and Judah. The rest of his brothers are joining, and we're still waiting. Notice this in Micah 5.3. It says, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. In some ways, we are seeing this, that Israel has not been entirely abandoned, but the New Testament tells us that there's a veil over their eyes right now. And, you know, we're still waiting for this to be fully accomplished. I love the fact that great numbers of Jewish people are coming to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. In 1948, when Israel was reconstituted, 600,000 Jews moved into the Holy Land, or some were already there. Do you know how many Jewish believers in Christ, Messianic Jews there were in 1948? Twenty-three. In 1999, there were 5,000. In 2022, more than 30,000. Folks, it's happening. It's, and around the world right now, hundreds of thousands of Jewish believers in Jesus the Messiah. This is historic. This was prophesied by Micah 700 years before Christ. 2,700 years before our time. And we live in an age where we're seeing this happen like has never happened in the last 2,000 years. Folks, I hope you understand we are in prophetic times. This is not, you know, end time craziness kind of talk. This is the fact of God's promises being kept. Paul says in Romans 11, verse 25, 
He said, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Don't get prideful about you Gentiles being brought into the family of God. He says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part, not completely, but in part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, when, when the Bible speaks of you know, expansive terms like that, that doesn't necessarily mean every single individual. It does mean that it's going to be such a mass movement of Jewish people coming into a knowledge of Jesus it, that you're going to just say, man, everybody in Israel's come to the Lord. All Israel's going to be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness, godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And a few verses before this, in Romans eleven fifteen, Paul says, For if there, that is Israel's rejection of the Messiah, brought reconciliation of the world, and what he's saying there is, okay, the Jews rejected Jesus. Paul then turned his attention from the synagogues to the Gentiles, Man, the Gentiles are coming to know Christ. And by the way, we live for the last 50 years, last 100 years, we have been living in the age of the greatest expansion of the church in its history. So amazing things are happening in the Gentile world and in the Jewish world. And so in 1115, if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be? When the Jews start really accepting Christ, what will it be? But life from the dead. Hallelujah. Amen. Man, I'm, I'm believing for this. You know, in, in 2019, right before COVID, we had a group of Victory members go to Israel. Great tour. And one of the things we got to do is visit a Messianic ministry. Jewish ministry. Hebrew-speaking Jewish ministry. Led by Jewish rabbis, Jewish leaders, uh, Believers in Jesus. And as we ended a time of discussion, we asked one of the rabbis, what can we do to help the Messianic movement in Israel? And do you know what he said? He said, go home and get as many Gentiles saved as possible. Why? Because that passage from Romans 11 says that the, the, the veil is going to be removed and they're going to be coming to the Lord. When the full number of Gentiles is brought in, it's going to happen, folks. That's one of the exciting things. We live in the day where we can see the gospel preached in every nation on earth. And Micah said long ago, Israel's going to be abandoned for a little while, but there are a lot of brothers to be brought in. We're living in that. We are the beneficiaries of that. Let's do it. You know, you, know what? you know what I think we should do? I think we should take Rabbi Asher and Trader's request very seriously in 2024. And I think that we should do all we can. We, we had about 500 decisions for Christ this past year. How about 1,000 in 2024? And not for the sake of numbers, but for the sake of seeing this come to pass. Amen? Amen? Let's do it. Then verse 4. This is, this, is, this is who it centers on. This is that one born in Bethlehem. Verse 4 of Micah 5. 
He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. You know, this is not about a political kingdom. This is about who one, one who stands in the strength of the Lord, the majesty of the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the King. Earthly rulers were corrupt. They were unjust, according to Micah. They deserved the shame they brought on themselves. But God was raising up, up a shepherd who would care for his flock, it says in verse 4. A shepherd who would care for his flock. That's lowly language. A, a lowly shepherd in the way that you might look at a shepherd. But notice that it's not just a lowly shepherd who is weak and powerless. It is a shepherd who cares with the power and the glory of God behind him. That is Jesus. That's the message of Micah chapter 5. You're in trouble. You're under siege. Brace yourself. Bad stuff has happened. Bad stuff has happened. What will happen? But get ready because there is hope. Put your hope in this ruler who will shepherd you. He will care for you. He will have the strength of God and the glory of God behind him. His greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. Folks, this is not just about Israel 2,700 years ago or Israel 2,000 years ago. This is about us today. Jesus being glorified in all the earth. And I love the way Micah 5.5 5 begins. And we'll just stop with that. He will be our peace. The siege is on. We're in trouble. All those problems I listed as problems recognized by Americans, they're real. And when it comes to the solutions, guess what? Probably not going to happen in our own strength and power. But you can have peace. You can be at peace. He is our peace. I said that God made very personal promises. Notice that his peace is very personal too. His peace is a person. His peace is Jesus. John 16, Jesus said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We, we might feel that, you know, Micah 5.1 describes our lives right now. Man, sometimes we've brought shame upon ourselves. You know what you do when you've done that? You admit it. There's no shame in admitting it to God because he wants to bring to you a shepherd who will shepherd and care for you in the power of God Almighty and then the glory of God Almighty. He wants to take away your troubles. He's overcome the world. And God overcomes, according to the promises of Micah, God overcomes these troubles and this shame with promises of grace, his goodness, strength, honor, glory, peace. Siege is real. Here's the thing, though. Don't be looking at Jerusalem. Don't be looking at 
your typical source of strength and power. Pride. Look to the one who came from Bethlehem. Look to Jesus, and God will bring you victory and peace. If you've never received Jesus, right now is the time to do it. If you're watching online and you've never received Christ, and you don't know the peace that only he can bring, if you don't know the the strength and the power of God at work in your life, giving you life, giving you hope in the midst of what feels like a siege, right now you can say yes to him and receive him. So I want to invite you to pray out loud with me. Everybody in the room pray. If you have never prayed this, make it your prayer from your heart. If you're watching online, pray it out loud. Don't worry about who might be in the room with you. Just pray this out loud and receive Christ as your Savior. Say these words, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I believe Jesus died. He was raised from the dead. And he is Lord. Forgive me of all my sins. And be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're watching, you prayed that prayer, make sure you let us know. We want to send you a Bible. We want to help you to continue your walk in the Lord. If you are here in the room, you prayed that prayer, make sure you let us know on your Connect card and uh, share that with us. And let me know. And we'll make sure that you have what you need to take next steps of faith with God. One of the things that we want to do in this service is also to give you a chance to respond through your giving. And we are in the season of joyful generosity. We are not only giving presents to one another and our families, but we want to give a present to the one who was born in Bethlehem. We want to give a present to Jesus. It is his birthday. And one of the things that we can do to honor Jesus is to give an over and above gift beyond our regular tithes and offerings, beyond our regular giving to Victory Church for the sake of mission. And I want to encourage you to give with this idea that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, that, that we're, we're sowing seed for revival. And we're sowing seed, I, I believe that, I, I think God just dropped this in my heart last weekend, a thousand souls in 2024. For us to double, we're going to have to do some things differently. We're going to have to pray more and, and be involved and do something different in 2024 that we haven't done or haven't done enough of in 2023, but I believe God's going to do it. But the resources will help us to do this. Part of the problem of Micah's day is that they didn't do the right things with the resources that they had. And one of the scholars that I read, one of the commentaries said that if you wanted to, to just boil the problems of Israel and Micah's day down to one issue, the issue is this, money. Our hold of money, materialism, and, and things along those lines can, can sometimes keep us from experiencing all the good things that God wants us to experience. And so I want to encourage you to have the, the right relationship with your finances and enjoy what God has blessed you with, but also use your resources for the glory of God. That's why he gives us his good gifts, not for our own pride, but for his glory. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, in the next chapter, Micah says this, 
He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy. That's something we extend to others. And to walk humbly with your God. Let's make our Christmas giving a part of giving expression to that way of life to which God has called us. Amen? Amen. Amen.